Hey, my name is Daniel Sutton, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. I want to thank our lead pastors, Chris and Jody, for the opportunity to continue our series this morning, All In, as we work our way through the book of Acts. We'll be taking a look at Acts chapter 9 today, talking about Saul's conversion, and I'm very, very excited about it. And as we get started, I want you to first think about someone that you know that is least likely to surrender their life to Christ. Daniel, I don't want to do that. That's, that feels kind of icky. Like, that's kind of wrong, right? Well, listen, I know that no one is beyond God's reach. Amen? No one is too far gone, but just humor me. Okay, think about someone you know who is set in their sinful ways, and they're enjoying their sinful ways. Think about someone you know who, to the best of their ability, would resist the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you just sat across from this person at Thanksgiving dinner. But you might base this on their past, or you might base this on their present living. I'm sure we can all think of somebody. Raise your hand if you can think of somebody. It's kind of a, a somber thought, right? But we can all think of somebody. I can rattle off names of celebrities that have openly walked away from the Christian faith that they grew up knowing. I could even mention some names of people that have actively spoken against the Christian faith. But all of those people, the ones you just thought of, any of these celebrities that walked away from faith, they all look like a saint compared to Saul of Tarsus. Now, think about the Grand Canyon. Raise your hand if you've ever stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon. Awesome. That's surprising. I haven't. I've seen pictures. I've watched videos. It looks absolutely amazing. Was it breathtaking? Yeah. The size of this canyon is almost more than you can fathom. It's difficult to even see the other side. I imagine the overwhelming feeling of standing on the edge can only be described as awe. Well, the chasm between Saul of Tarsus and Jesus is even wider than the widest part of the Grand Canyon. We're going to hear a testimony this morning, and it's a powerful one. Well, hold on, Daniel. Aren't, aren't all testimonies powerful? Yes, yes. But sometimes you hear a testimony, and on the surface, it just sounds kind of ordinary, right? If I shared my testimony with you, it would fall into that category. Now, of course, every testimony is powerful because it represents a life that was spiritually dead and now one that is spiritually alive, amen? So it's all powerful, but sometimes you hear a testimony and it's so dramatic, right? It's almost unbelievable or inconceivable. That's the testimony of Saul of Tarsus. And it is clearly one of the greatest conversion stories ever told. And the conversion of Saul is incredibly important, not just to the written account of Acts that we're continuing. It's so central because it actually, man, I don't know we'd have Christianity without it. It's so central, we find it in the book of Acts three times. If you're taking note, write down Acts 22 and Acts 26, and later you can find the artist formerly known as Saul, now Paul, post-conversion, telling his story, his testimony. And then you can find it in a number of his letters as well, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Timothy. Saul experienced a conversion. So let's define that. What is a conversion? 
The process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. Change in character, attitude, emotion, viewpoint. A thorough spiritual change involving repentance. That's what Saul experienced. Now, before we get into Acts chapter 9 and learn about this conversion, I want to take a quick look back at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, just to remind ourselves of who we're talking about. Just like, you know, how grimy was this dude? Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 57. These are the people that, that were covering their ears, didn't want to hear what Stephen was shouting. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Amen? See, after Pentecost, the church began to impact the world very quickly. Why? Because of the disciples that went active with their faith. And the church exploded so quickly that it elicited this intense persecution. The stoning of Stephen marked the beginning of the church's intense persecution, and the disciples of Jesus were scattered throughout the region. This is where we meet Saul, on the sidelines of Stephen's murder in Jerusalem. Then in Acts 8, we see Philip excitedly sharing the gospel with an Ethiopian on a desert road heading toward Gaza. From there, we jump to another man on another road, this one headed toward Damascus. It's Saul. And he would become the chief prosecutor and persecutor of the church. But instead of hindering the church's mission, this persecution sets it on fire. Jesus' followers, once settled in Jerusalem, now move out of their comfort zone and into the world. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 22. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is indeed the son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Amen? Would you pray with me? Good morning, Lord. We thank you that you are here with us. It's unmistakable. And we're so thankful for your presence, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for what you've already accomplished. And we're so grateful that you will teach us today from your word. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us hearts to receive. Give us minds to understand. Give us hands and feet to apply your truth to our lives. It's in Jesus' name, the strong son of God. And everybody said... Amen, amen. So, verse 1, we see this word meanwhile. Meanwhile, what? Well, Stephen is being stoned. Saul, not only one, but two thumbs up, approves of this. He's dragging people from their homes. Think about how annoyed you are when someone knocks on your door unexpected. Like every day of the year except for Halloween. If someone knocks on your door, you're not expecting anybody, you're just annoyed, right? Or angry, or you just try to hide, turn the lights off, something. Saul is showing up at people's home uninvited, dragging them from their homes because they're following the way. Saul wasn't just annoyed with Christians. He didn't just want to silence them. He wanted to end them. Perhaps you remember our study through the book of Philippians. In chapter 3, Paul, post-conversion, said he was zealous in persecuting the church. 
See, Saul spent great energy and enthusiasm and time and resources on this mission of persecuting the church. Saul's like a fighter that gets punched in the lip, tastes blood, and then gets more angry. He's like a shark that smells blood in the water and then goes in for the kill. The word says that with every breath, he voiced murderous threats. Saul was literally inhaling hate and exhaling rage. But God saw to it that all of this only caused his church to grow and spread. So Saul heads toward Damascus to try and cut off the spread of Christianity from reaching any further north. In verse 2, we see what he was going to in Damascus. It was the synagogue. This was the Jewish gathering place for worship. Saul actually asked for the government's permission to oppress the people of God. That's what's happening. He's getting warrants to go have a green light to persecute anywhere and anyone that he pleased. It's troubling how familiar that sounds, how realistic that seems nowadays. And this journey from Jerusalem to Damascus would have taken Saul anywhere from four to six days. I think this again shows us just how much hate and anger he had built up inside of him. Listen, I get mad, I yell, I get angry. Give me 20 minutes and I'm good. I'm over it, all right? My wife might still be mad at me because she's processing, but I just want to deal with it and move on. But, but Saul, it was at least a four days journey that he just kept himself all worked up, all hyped up, full of anger and rage. On his way to persecute Christians, or as we see in verse two, followers of the way. The way. At this point, the term Christian or Christianity had not yet become common it was the way. This new religion, this new movement of Jesus was called the way, and its followers were called disciples. Isn't it interesting that Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, would say of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself is the way. Amen? And Jesus himself provided that name, the way, for his church, and for his faith. And there have been so many man-made names for religious groups, but the vast majority of them do not even honor Jesus because they're not grounded in Scripture. They're not from the Word of God. We need to return to the way. Amen? Following the way. It was good enough for Jesus. It was good enough for the original disciples. It's even good enough for the Mandalorians. This is the way. So let us be followers of the way. Amen? And as we go, point others to the way. Amen? In verses 3 and 4, we see that the Bible says a light from heaven flashed and shone around Saul. This was some kind of light. This was no early morning glow that tries to sneak around the curtain in your bedroom. This was no narrow beam. No, this light enveloped Saul. It overwhelmed him and literally knocked him to the ground. When Paul tells the story in Acts 26 that you're going to look up later, Paul said that this light was, quote, brighter than the sun. That's some kind of light. 
You ever looked at the sun? You know, we're not supposed to. Kids don't try this at home. But we look at the sun, right? And then like one second or less later, it, like, that's all we can handle, right? This light that knocked Saul to the ground was brighter than the sun. What was happening here? God was making sure that he had Saul's full and undivided attention. Reminds me of a story. Maybe it took place in Kentucky, Pastor Chris. There was an old farmer, and he claimed that he could get his mule to obey with nothing more than a few soft words. So his buddy down at the feed store said, prove it. Show me you can get this old mule to respond to your gentle language and nothing more. So out into the field they went, the farmer, his buddy, and the mule. As the friend watched, first in awe and then in horror, the farmer took a huge piece of lumber, a six-foot-long two-by-four, and swung it back and whacked that mule on one of his ears as hard as he could. Well, finally, the animal stopped crying and prancing around, and the farmer then said quietly, Come here. And the mule came. Sit. And the whimpering mule sat. Back up. And the mule backed up into the harness of a waiting plow and waited calmly for him to look up. You see? She'll respond in a simple voice command. But his friend objected. What are you talking about? You just whacked him in the side of the head with the two-by-four. Oh, that, said the farmer. Well, first, I do have to get her attention. Did God ever have to work extra hard to get your attention? Has God ever had to knock you off your horse? Has God ever had to radically shift your plans or at least just pause them to get through to you? That's what we see happening to Saul. Church, let's be quick to give God our full and undivided attention. Amen? He deserves it. Amen? After this light from heaven, brighter than the sun, knocks Saul to the ground, he hears a voice, and the voice knows his name. In fact, he says it twice, Saul, Saul. We see this in a couple of other places in scripture. God did this with Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Martha, Simon, and some others. We even see Jesus say to the father while hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God repeats a name, it's for emphasis, and it shows intimacy, and it is a prelude to something greater. When God repeats a name, it is often followed by change and elevation or promotion. So the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul replies, who are you, Lord? Now, some versions have a lowercase l for Lord here. This is the most accurate, one of the reasons why I read from the New Living Translation today. This is like Saul saying, sir, who are you, sir? There's a term of respect. See, Saul doesn't know what's happening to him. He certainly doesn't know who is speaking to him. He does not recognize this voice. He's not a follower of the way. He knew some things. Saul was a Pharisee, very well educated, but he did not believe that Jesus to him, Jesus, the man, had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. As far as Saul understood and believed, Jesus was dead. It's part of the reason why he was so angry at followers of the way. So Saul says, who are you, Lord? 
as in, who are you, sir? He was not saying, who are you, Lord Jesus, okay? And then this voice answers, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Okay, well, now he knows who he's talking to. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. A couple of things stand out here. First, Saul could have thought, I didn't persecute you, Jesus. I thought you were dead. Sure, I gave your followers a hard time, but I didn't do anything to you personally. He could have tried to defend himself against this allegation. But second, and more importantly, this shows us that Jesus is intimately connected and one with his people. Amen? Jesus said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. When the people of God are persecuted, God takes that personally. You are his child if you are following the way. He does not just sit back and allow it. When the children of God are mistreated, we see Abba Father, Daddy God, come to their defense. The King James Version gives us a bit of a different perspective to this portion of the story. We find a couple things there. In the KJV, we see this phrase, kick against the goads. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? A goad is a long, extremely sharp stick used to get an ox going the way you wanted it to go when plowing. A farmer would jab the hind legs of a stubborn ox with this goad until the ox cooperated. Sometimes it took a while. Jesus is telling Saul here that I've been trying to get your attention. I've been trying to speak to you and get you headed in a different direction. I've been poking you with a sharp stick, Saul. But Saul's been fighting it, rebelling against it, kicking back. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm the farmer. Saul, you're an ox. And it was abundantly clear that now Saul would not be able to fight against it anymore. I wonder, have you been kicking against the goad? Have you been fighting the drawing of the Holy Spirit, kicking back against his plans for your life? If so, today's the time to surrender. The King James Version also shows us that Saul asks the Lord, once he knows who's speaking to him, he, he asks the Lord, what do you want me to do? What next? And he says it with a capital L, as in, yes, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, this was a place, this was a moment of surrender. This was a place when he was called. He said, what do you want from me? In verse 6, Jesus tells Saul then to go to the city for his next steps. Why didn't Jesus just tell Saul what to do right then and there? You ever wondered that? He finally had his full and undivided attention. So why make him go to the city? Why get Ananias involved? In, in a few verses, we'll see that Ananias was spoken to in a vision. He traveled three days' journey, and then he prayed for Saul. Why didn't Jesus just cut out the middleman? Well, hang with me. We'll get there in a few verses. In verse 7, we find that Saul's travel companions were left speechless. Now, they were either unable to speak or just didn't have a clue what to say. Maybe a little bit of both. I think that they were physically unable to speak, experiencing selective mutism in that moment. See, they had just seen this light. They had just heard this voice, but they did not see who was speaking. These companions would later serve as witnesses to help validate Saul's testimony. It's no coincidence that Saul was not alone. 
We also see in verse 8 that these companions helped Saul get to the city because as a result of this light from heaven, Saul was temporarily left blind. Some kind of scale or cataract formed over his eye, but his companions weren't affected that way, so they were able to guide him. Just again, God's sovereignty, not to leave Saul blind all by himself in the middle of nowhere. Saul had been blind to the way. Now he would temporarily experience being physically blind. In verse 9, we see for just how long. For three days, Saul was blind. He also went without food or drink for those three days. This was the beginning of the suffering Saul would endure for Jesus, as mentioned in verse 16. This three-day period that followed the incredible encounter radically revolutionized Saul's life. Raise your hand if you remember another important three-day period in our history. Anyone? Certainly the, the time between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus when his body was buried. But Jesus is alive! Amen? That was the most significant three-day period in history. I think this one is the second. And I can't help but wonder what went through Saul's mind during those three days. Try putting yourself in Saul's sandals. I imagine a roller coaster of emotions and thoughts went through his head. If you've ever experienced something dramatic or walked through something traumatic, then you know that the thoughts and feelings that you experienced in that moment do not quickly go away. Am I right about it? That memory might play over and over and over again in your mind. You might question, like, did that really happen? Like, am I really going through this? And once you come to terms with that, you're like, well, why? And what now? I imagine Saul crying in one moment, laughing in disbelief in another. Maybe that anger monkey started bubbling up again inside of him. His companions probably questioned their own sanity and the sanity of Saul during these three days. It was likely an ugly few days as Saul experienced for the first time suffering for Jesus' namesake. And then in verse 10, we see Jesus spoke to Ananias, a follower of the way. He spoke to him in a vision. He also called him by name, saying, Ananias. And Ananias replies, yes, Lord, capital L. Okay, yes, Lord. He recognized who was speaking to him. He was a follower of the way. And the Lord gets straight to the point. No small talk whatsoever. No, like, isn't this weather nice, Ananias? No, he's just like... This is what you're going to do. Ananias, this is where you go. Damascus, this is who you're going to see. Saul of Tarsus, this is what you're going to do. You're going to pray for him. And we also find something neat in verse 11. We actually find what helped Saul endure that intense three-day period. He prayed. When you're in the middle of an unbelievable situation, when you're looking for answers, what do you do? You pray. Church is so simple, Right? But it's so profound. Jesus told Ananias, Saul is praying to me right now. We can only imagine what Saul was feeling and thinking, but we know that in the midst of it, he prayed. Prayer is what helped Saul endure the three days without his sight or food or drink. Church, when you are in disbelief, pray. 
When you feel alone, pray. When you're not seeing clearly, pray. When you're waiting for the answer, pray. And then pray some more. And then pray some more. And then pray some more. In verse 13 and 14, Ananias is like, Lord, are you sure? Like, who questions the vision? Ananias does. I think I might have too, if I were him. Right? Did you say Saul of Tarsus? Like, you know what this guy's done, right? I know a Saul west of here, Saul of Caesarea. He's good people. Can I go visit him? No. Saul of Tarsus. This dude's caused us a lot of trouble. You, you remember that, right, Lord? He's done terrible things. He's even gotten warrants to persecute whoever he wants. Here, where you're sending me. The Lord says, go. Again, no small talk. Go. You know, I, I imagine there might have been a little, a little thought behind that. You know, like, do you know who you're talking to, Ananias? Don't question my authority. Just go. God had called Saul to be the tip of the spear on this enormous missions effort of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and beyond. What do we see from Saul and Ananias' reactions? When God says go, go. The only question you should have is where. And when God says do, do. The only question should be what. That's what Saul did. That's what Ananias did. That's what every follower of the way should do. That's how we should live. Church, let's be quick to obey the voice of God. In verse 16, even after Paul was saved, healed, called, baptized, he would suffer greatly for his faith. Verse 16 alludes to it. It started with this temporary blindness, but later would include shipwrecks and prison and beatings. And this verse is alluding to all that suffering that was still to come for Jesus' name's sake. And I think this clearly shows us that even when we experience grace and forgiveness, so thankful for it, there are still consequences for our actions, right? Saul was saved and anointed, called by the Lord, but there were still consequences for the persecution he had unleashed. But remember, suffering for the Lord, not a bad thing at all. Paul would grow up, he would mature in his faith, and later would write, along with Peter and others, of experiencing the fellowship of suffering with Christ, and that it was actually a blessing to suffer for doing good. Amen? Then we get to verse 17. Church, I think verse 17 is my favorite part of this story. Ananias obeys the Lord's instruction. He finds Saul, lays his hands on him, and the first two words that come out of his mouth are, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. This is beautiful. I think this is amazing because remember, Ananias was scared of Saul. Ananias questioned the vision from the Lord to go pray for Saul, right? But he was obedient, and somewhere on this three-day journey, something shifted, and Ananias gets in front of Saul and says, Brother Saul. This was the very first acknowledgement and welcome to the body of Christ for Saul. He had become a follower of the way, and Ananias' God-given role was to welcome Saul into the family of God. What an honor. We need people like that in the church, people like Ananias. When someone comes to Christ and you question what God's done in their life because they don't look like you think they should look, they're not as far along as you think they should be, 
They've got a real shady past. We need people to embrace them and say, welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. Sometimes we forget who we used to be before we met Jesus. Some of y'all may have forgotten who you were just a couple of nights ago. But we extend grace. We thank God for his sanctification in our lives. We recognize the work of sanctification in someone else's life. And we welcome our brothers and sisters with open arms. I think this is a beautiful picture of community. You're my brother. You're my sister. No, we're not perfect, but we encourage one another. We pray for each other. We think the best of one another. We celebrate the good we see. We point out the potential. We speak the truth in love to one another. Amen? Let us be loving brothers and sisters of Christ to one another. So Ananias, remember when I asked why didn't Jesus cut out the middleman? That's what Ananias was, the middleman. Because Jesus loves to use people. As flawed as we are, as broken as we are, one of the greatest desires of the heart of God is to use his people. He wants to use you. He wants to use you. God's all about using his creation to accomplish his will. God desires to see men and women do his work. Because when the people of God do the work of God, God is glorified. So let us never underestimate ourselves or anyone else who has surrendered their life to Christ and is busy about the Father's business because that work of the ministry will leave a legacy. It'll trickle down and make a lasting impact far longer than their life. We don't hear much more about Ananias, do we? But a whole lot about Paul. Ananias was instrumental in that process little more modern-day example. There was a man named Edward Kimball who was a shoe salesman and a Sunday school teacher. And one day he shared the gospel with his class, and one of the boys that received Jesus was a boy named Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody became a pastor and led a man named Frederick Meyer to the Lord in one of his services. F.B. Meyer began doing the work of God, and in doing so led a man named Wilbur Chapman to faith in Jesus. Wilbur Chapman was a big-time player with the YMCA, and he hired a former professional baseball player named Billy Sunday to be a YMCA evangelist. Well, Billy Sunday went to North Carolina to speak to some Christian businessmen who got so inspired that they began a crusade. They brought in evangelist Mordecai Ham to preach that crusade, and on the very last night of that crusade in North Carolina, a young man named Billy Graham went forward to receive Christ as Savior. And of course, we know how God used Billy Graham to minister to presidents, to work alongside Dr. Martin Luther King, and to lead thousands upon thousands, if not millions, into the kingdom of God. What's the point? God chose to do all of that work through one person's surrender and obedience followed by another and then another. Church, will you surrender? Will you obey? Whatever your role is in the story. Now hear me. If you surrender and you obey and you're busy about the work of God, I'm not saying that you're going to be a Billy Graham. Okay? But perhaps you'll be Edward Kimball. Perhaps you'll be Wilbur Chapman. 
There would be no Billy Graham without Edward Kimball, that shoe salesman and Sunday school teacher. You might not be a Paul. You could be Ananias. You might never plant and pastor a church like the Tomlinsons, but you can lead a community group. You can serve. You can live a surrendered life and an obedient life to the Spirit of God and see God do so much good with your little to further the kingdom on this world. Amen? In a world full of people that think they want to be Paul, are you willing to be an Ananias? You are a vital part of the body, Christian. Your role is critical. No one else can do what you can do quite how you can do it. You are important and you are needed in the work of the ministry. Will you answer that call? There was a song in 1990 by a Christian artist named Al Benson, a song titled Be the One. And the chorus is, will you be the one to answer to his call? Will you stand when those around you fall? Will you be the one to take his light into a darkened world? Will you be the one? Will you? In verses 18 through 20, we see the Holy Spirit through Ananias confirming to Saul that he wasn't going crazy, <laughs> that he had experienced what he thought he had experienced. Can you imagine the relief once Saul finally heard those two words, Brother Saul? Huh? Who's that? Ananias? Whoa, God told me you were going to be here. Wow, this is awesome. Can you imagine? I'm not going crazy. And then he received his sight. Ananias prayed for him. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice, Saul was not filled with the Holy Spirit when that light from heaven knocked him to the ground. And when Jesus spoke to him, I think this is when he was called. This is when he was saved, but the Spirit of God filled him later on. So he was filled with the Spirit. He was baptized. And the Bible says he immediately started sharing his faith in the synagogue. Saul went back to the very place that he tried to put a stop to the spread of the way. And now he was following the way and preaching that the way was the only way. Man, church, if you've accepted Christ as Savior but have not yet been water baptized, do it soon. Please let us know. We'll fill that trough up next Sunday. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior and have not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit, you can do that today. We'll have some prayer partners right over here to my right and your left. We'll be honored to pray for that with you. If you've accepted Christ as Savior but are not sharing your faith with others, what are you waiting for? Let's follow the example of Saul here, right? The work of the Holy Spirit through Saul and answer the call. In verse 21, the people that heard Saul were amazed like, they saw this guy coming through the door of the synagogue, and they probably ran for the bathroom, ran for the back door, right? But then he starts preaching. Like, what's going on? They asked each other, isn't this the guy that tried to put a stop to all this, and now he's leading the charge? See, as zealous as Saul was to persecute Christians, he was equally, if not more, enthusiastic and bold to now proclaim the gospel. Why Saul? Why not Saul? Why not Saul? Why not those people that we thought of that seem like they're too far gone, right? No one is beyond the power of God to be reached and redeemed and used for God's purpose, amen? 
The arm of the Lord is not like a T-Rex, okay? His arms are long and they are strong and they can grab a hold of whomever they please. Whether that person is seeking God, whether that person is doubting their doubts, or whether that person is vehemently opposed to God like Saul was. Nothing is impossible for God. You were never too far gone. And Paul was enraged with anger and hate, passionately persecuting disciples of Jesus, and then he was radically transformed and became the greatest Christian missionary of all time. His life was radically changed when he saw Jesus. And Saul's transformation was so radical that everybody could see the difference. Some people didn't like it. Some people still wanted to hurt and even kill Paul because Saul for all that he had done. But some people were excited seeing this change of heart, and they wanted to help him. But the before and after in Saul's life was too big to miss. If you are a follower of the way, can people tell? Do you look differently than you used to? Do you live differently than you used to? We should. We should. The church in Acts would have never dreamed of Saul becoming their leader. No one saw that coming. It's for this reason that we need to remember the Lord's word through the prophet in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We sung about that. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, says the Lord. I think one of the most significant and recurring challenges that we have as the body of Christ is learning to trust God. What he wants to do, when he wants to do it, who he wants to do it through. He does not follow our expectations. But God will always accomplish his will according to his ways and his thoughts. And God will use men like Saul to bring him glory in the world. And most of the time when God is at work, we'll have to be honest and say, I never saw that coming. But God's ways are always best. Saul became known as Paul, the apostle, by the grace of God, and preached Jesus Christ to the world. Church, we must trust God even when we do not understand all that he is doing. Because he promises to work everything for the good of those who love him and are called, in, called according to his purpose. So don't make God work extra hard to capture your attention. Work at recognizing God's voice in your life and then obey it. Do whatever God asks you to do as you were doing it unto him and him alone. Be a loving and welcoming brother or sister in the body of Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be water baptized and share your faith with others. Amen? Now, perhaps you're here this morning or maybe viewing online and you can identify with Saul. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself an enemy of God, but you're definitely not following him. Listen, God is God and he could reveal himself to you in a number of unfathomable ways, just like he did to Saul. Or you could just choose to surrender your heart to him today. 
Have you been kicking against the goads? Have you been going through life like a stubborn ox, resisting the knocking of the door on your heart? Everyone here in person, those of you in online, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Man, he's crazy about you. Even though he knows everything about you, he still loves you. I think if Jesus had a wallet, your picture would be in it. And if he had a ginormous cosmic refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He loves you because he created you. And he created you so that you could know him. Do you want to know him today? The Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all missed the bullseye. And while we might compare our holiness to someone else to try and make ourselves feel better, to God, we all look like Saul. And because we all look like Saul, we all deserve what, what Saul deserved. Death and eternal separation from Jesus. But because of Jesus and the price he paid on the cross, we can have what Saul got. Forgiveness, acceptance, salvation, and eternity with Jesus. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. The Bible says if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. With heads bowed and eyes closed and Christians quietly praying, if you're here today and you felt like a Saul, you've been resisting, but you want to surrender today, you want to give yourself to Jesus, but more than that, you want to accept Jesus and his gift of eternal life. I want you to raise your hand. If you're online today and you want to accept Jesus, I want you to just type there into the comment section, I have decided. Allow us a chance to follow up with Church, pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that even though we're so unworthy, you love us still. You have great plans and a purpose for us. We thank you that you call us by name. You know us by name. Help us to recognize your voice and be quick to obey whatever you tell us to do. Help us to live a life surrendered to you. We love you. And we're listening. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand and worship a little more.